Support for this podcast is provided by Avalara. Since 2004, Avalara's vision has been to harness the power of cloud technology to help simplify sales tax for businesses of all sizes, and their solutions are designed to affordably scale with businesses as they grow. Collecting tax for the government is something businesses just have to do, but getting the job done efficiently and correctly can be an incredible challenge because tax rules and regulations are endlessly complicated. Avalara keeps track of how thousands upon thousands of products are taxed in more than 13,000 tax jurisdictions, and that's just in the United States. And with more than 1,000 signed partner integrations, Avalara likely integrates with the ERP, e-commerce, mobile payment, and point-of-sale systems you use today. Find out how your business can be sales tax ready at avalara.com slash tax notes. That's avalara.com slash tax notes. Avalara, tax compliance done right. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, more extra credit. When we last talked about the Advanced Child Tax Credit in July, which we'll link to in the show notes, the IRS was beginning to roll out those payments. Since then, four batches of payments have gone out, with the latest being sent to 36 million families. So how has the rollout gone? And what should practitioners and taxpayers keep an eye out for in the future? Here to talk more about this is Tax Notes contributing editor, Marie Sapiri. Marie, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's start off with a recap of the history of this advanced child tax credit and what's happened over the last several months. The advanced child tax credit was enacted in the American Rescue Plan Act earlier this year. It's currently a one-year expansion of the existing child tax credit that has been in the code since the late 1990s. Over the past few months, Congress has been working on the budget reconciliation bill, which is where the legislators will decide whether or not to extend the expansion beyond December. So as they're working to extend these tax credits, I understand there's some division amongst the Democrats. Could you tell us about that? The dividing lines have become clearer in recent days. The expansion of the credit made the credit fully refundable, which removed the requirement that a taxpayer have income in order to receive the full amount of the credit. Previously, only part of the credit was refundable. Senator Joe Manchin wants that requirement that credit recipients have income added to the expanded credit for 2022. He has also said recently that he wants a much lower income cap above which the expanded credit would not be available. He recently said that the income cap should be at $60,000 in household income. For comparison, the American Rescue Plan Act began to phase out the expanded credit at $150,000 for married couples filing jointly, and the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act phase out began at $400,000. The new Democrat coalition considers the expanded child tax credit a top priority in reconciliation, and they released a statement on October 18th in support of extending the credit through 2025. They want the credit to stay fully refundable, and they said that scaling the credit back or limiting its accessibility would hurt middle-class families. Now, you recently spoke with someone about the child tax credit. Could you tell me about your guest and what you talked about? I spoke with Professor Jacob Golden of Stanford Law School. He has written extensively about the child tax credit and previously worked in the Office of Tax Policy at the Treasury Department. We talked about the changes that are in the draft legislative text released by House Democrats in September. All right, let's go to that interview. Thank you, Jacob, for joining me today to talk about the Advanced Child Tax Credit. Yeah, thanks for having me here. So the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021 expanded the child tax credit in several major ways. 
the maximum amount of the credit increased from $2,000 per child to $3,000 for children over age six and $3,600 for children under six. And the credit was made fully refundable so that eligible families do not need to meet an income requirement in order to receive the full amount of the credit. The American Rescue Plan Act also directed the IRS to advance half of the credit in monthly installments, which the agency began doing in July. Those changes all expire at the end of December, so the budget reconciliation bill draft that Congress is currently working on includes an extension of those two main elements, as well as a number of other modifications to the credit, which we'll talk about today. To set the stage for the proposal that Congress is currently considering, would you give us a brief overview of the development of the child tax credit to this point to put the proposed changes in context? Yeah, absolutely. So the child tax credit is one of these policies that has been expanded over time. You know, it started out mostly as a non-refundable credit, so benefiting more middle-income taxpayers. And over time, a portion of it has become refundable. So prior to the 2017 tax reform, the maximum credit amount was $1,000 per taxpayer per kid. And the amount of the credit that was refundable phased in based on the taxpayer's earned income. So, you know, like the earned income tax credit, a taxpayer who had no earned income, who wasn't working basically, doesn't qualify, didn't qualify for any child tax credit or CTC. And when taxpayers earn more income, they uh, qualified for more. So the TCJA, the 2017 tax reform, you know, sort of tweaked a little bit the refundability formula so that families could start to qualify for the child tax credit, starting at having $2,500 of earned income as opposed to $3,000 before, and then also doubled the maximum credit amount from $1,000 to $2,000. So for families who qualified for the full amount, it was a big change. The families, though, who were still excluded were those who were earning less than $2,500, or you know, families that didn't get the full benefit amount were those that were earning, uh, you know, sort of depending on their circumstances, it could be you know, up to like, if you have two kids, for example, and are married, I, I think the threshold was about $30,000. So if you earned less than $30,000, you wouldn't qualify for the full amount of the benefit. And so the 2021, you know, the credit that is in, currently in place for 2021, like you mentioned, is fully refundable. And so even the lower income households, the households who are earning zero or below that $2,500 amount are still entitled to the full credit. The draft tax bill for reconciliation released by the House Democrats in September would make a number of changes to the administration of the credit. And I was hoping to get your thoughts on those changes. Some of the proposal applies for 2022 as an extension of the 2021 credit. And there are other rule changes that would apply from 2023 to 2025. Could you explain the purpose of those different set of rules and how that works and the transition period there? Sure. And like you said, next year, 2022 is really envisioned as a transition year. So 2022 doesn't change much of the functioning of the rule from what we have right now. In particular, it's still an annual eligible, it's basically an annual credit at heart in 2022. The determination of whether a child is a taxpayer's qualifying child for the credit is based on an annual all or nothing level. And, and we can sort of talk through the qualifying child tests, which are basically all annual for 2022. So what are the changes for 2022? One of the big changes is increasing the safe harbor amount. So for 2021, only half of the child tax credit was paid out in advance. 
And so that meant that for a safe harbor, basically as a protection for taxpayers who got paid credit amounts as monthly advance payments, but who didn't actually qualify for those payments based on their sort of full year situation, they were protected by the safe harbor from having to repay the full amount. But because it was only half of the annual credit that was being paid out in advance in 2021, the safe harbor didn't have to be so high. So for 2022, it's envisioned that the credit will be paid out every single month in advance, the full credit amount. And so that means in order to protect parents from repayment obligations, the safe harbor amount has to be higher. It has to cover the full credit amount. So you know, for the lowest income households, 2022 would have a safe harbor equal to sort of the full credit amount per child. Now, the flip side of that is that when you have a, a high safe harbor, you can make it pretty tempting for taxpayers to try to game the rules, right? They can sort of strategically decide who reports the kid is with them. One parent maybe would try to get the advanced monthly payments, and then the other parent would say, no, 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 the kid actually lived with me. And if you had sort of a, you know, an absolute safe harbor, there wouldn't be any way for the IRS to claw back those payments you know, which is problematic for lots of reasons, like including program integrity. So another change that was made for both 2021 and 2022 was to tighten up the safe harbor a little bit. So if taxpayers, you know, through fraud, or in, I think the standard is intentional disregard of the statute or regulations are sort of claiming a child in error, then in those cases, they're not going to get the safe harbor benefits. So those are the major changes for 2022. Support for this podcast is provided by SafeSend. Stop spending money on paper organizers that clients hate to fill out. SafeSend Organizers converts your static PDF client organizer to a digital, fillable form. When you provide a digital client organizer that is easy to complete and return, clients are more likely to provide the info you need. Automation is transforming tax engagement, and the next step is using digital, fillable client organizers. Schedule a demo at safesend.com to see it in action. That's safesend.com. For the changes from 2023 on, there's a new term in the proposal, the specified child. Would you take us through that concept and definition and help us to understand what it means for taxpayers? Yeah, absolutely. And so unlike 2022, which is really just a tweak, but keeping with the basic structure for how kids qualify for the child tax credit, Things look very different for 2023 through 2025 and, and presumably onwards if it's extended. And then the idea is basically with a credit that's being paid out monthly, you want to have a monthly idea of eligibility. So let me just briefly review what the current rules are, the sort of annual qualifying child rules, and then I could talk through how the specified child test that's proposed for 2023 onwards would differ from that. So to claim a kid for the child tax credit today, in 2021 and historically, the child needs to be the taxpayer's qualifying child. And there are a number of tests for that. I, I won't go through all of them, but, but some of the important ones are that the taxpayer has to live with a child for over half of the year, so 183 days or more, and the taxpayer has to be a close enough relative to the child. So those are the relationship tests is the relative one and the residency tests. And so starting with the residency tests, you know, this is an annual test. It's all or nothing. So if the kid lives with you for 180 days, you know, you don't qualify to claim that child for the entire year. There are exceptions, but that's, that's sort of the general rule. And, and the reason why that's a problem when you have sort of a credit that's being paid out monthly in advance 
is that kids can move households during the year. Kids can and do move households. So if you have a child who's living with taxpayer A, you know, for like January, February, March, April of the year, and then moves to taxpayer B's house, instead, you know, under an annual test, A wouldn't qualify to claim that child for the year. And so what would that mean? Well, under sort of a strict annual test, without a safe harbor, A would have to pay back those four months of advanced credits that A received. And, and so that's, that's a problem. You know, it's, it's a problem from a policy perspective, right? It's usually bad policy to make households pay back money that they've already received, that they may have already spent. Uh, and it's bad politics. You know, in, in countries like the United Kingdom, when child allowances were first introduced, there were lots of political backlash with households trying to, being forced to sort of pay back money they already received. So, you know, lots of the design changes I think you can understand as being driven by a desire to avoid having to make families pay back money they've already received. So how do they do that? How does the law move away from an annual test? Basically, one of the big changes is that for the uh, child tax credit, the expanded child tax credit, at least for 2023 onwards, the specified child definition replaces the qualifying child definition. And and a a child is a taxpayer-specified child month by month. So you qualify to claim a kid basically at the month level instead of for a whole year. And so what does the residency test look like at a month-by-month level? Basically, it's the analog. So the kid has to live with the taxpayer for more than half of the month. And if they do, then they satisfy the residency test for that taxpayer for that month. So that's the residency aspect. And so you can see that that that, that part becomes monthly. What about the relationship test? That was one of the other big requirements under current law to claim a child as a qualifying child. And here, the specified child rules also move away from the current law. So one of the concerns with the relationship test right now is that, you know, there are kids who are not being raised by a close enough relative and who are therefore sort of just mechanically excluded from benefiting from these tax benefits. So a kid being raised by a cousin, for example, or informally fostered by like a close family friend or a neighbor. Those kids right now are not not able to be claimed by anyone for the child tax credit. And so, you know, part of the desire of expanding the credit is to make it really universal so that, you know, almost all kids are able to qualify. I think it, it seems like one of the goals here is by moving away from the relationship test to make sure that those kids aren't left out. Okay, so how does it do that? So basically the relationship test is eliminated as a requirement to claim a child for a month. And instead, in its place, there's a new test that's imposed, which is this caretaking requirement. And basically the rule is that a taxpayer, in order to claim a child for a month, not only has to live with a kid for that month, but also has to provide uncompensated care for the child for that month. That raises the immediate question, what is uncompensated care? And the law provides a facts and circumstances set of analyses. So, you know, basically it points to like a number of factors and those are the ones that govern that. And so what are those factors? It's, it's sort of the things that you would expect, like supervision of the daily activities and needs of the child, maintenance of the secure environment for the child. It could include like who takes care of the kid when the kid is sick, who drives them to the doctor. So things sort of along those lines. So those are the two big ways. So just to summarize, right? The the expanded child tax credit moves away from the qualifying child test, which is annual, and switches to the specified child test, which is evaluated month by month. And in addition to sort of moving to monthly analogs of those annual tests, 
It moves away from the relationship test and imposes instead a caretaking requirement. In terms of the administration of the month to month, in situations where a child is a specified child of taxpayer A and then it moves to taxpayer B's house, I assume that through the child tax credit portals is how taxpayers will inform the IRS of those changes. Is that correct? That's the idea is, is that basically, yeah, you, you want the credit to be able to follow the child. So when the child moves between houses or residences, you want to give the taxpayers a, a way to, you know, to alert the IRS to those changes in, in situations. And in situations where the notification doesn't happen, how does that process work? And that's, that's a good lead into this idea of presumptive eligibility, which is, I think, one of the other major new pieces that's in this, this legislation. So sort of stepping back, think of a case where the child moves from household A to household B, but the parents sort of don't tell the IRS right in time. And so household A keeps on receiving the payments for, say, some number of extra months. You know, that's, that's probably, we all know, sort of in practice, a realistic scenario, right? When kids are moving households, there's lots going on. Often it's a period of instability. Alerting the IRS to the change uh, might not be the first thing on the, you know, the family's mind, the family whose kid just moved out. And so conceptually, there are sort of three approaches the law could take here. The law could require household A to sort of pay back the payments and let household B sort of retroactively claim the payments for the month since the child moved in. Another option is you could basically let household A keep the payments and also let household B retroactively claim those months. And that would be sort of like a safe harbor approach. And then the third option is, is you could let household A keep the payments and basically household B wouldn't be able to retroactively go back and claim the months since the kid moved in, they would only be able to get the payments going forward. And, and what the draft does is take sort of a middle ground between those approaches. So, you know, in 2022, it's a safe harbor. And that, that's sort of like the second of those approaches. You basically let the old household uh, not have to pay back the money because of the safe harbor and the new household could go back and claim it. But, you know, sort of like we talked about earlier on, there are some concerns about gaming that, you know, that would be sort of an easy rule for taxpayers to exploit in the long run to basically, you know, double the amount of payments going out the door without the IRS being able to claw it back. It would be very expensive. It would probably, that's, that's probably a downside of having just a full safe harbor policy in place. And then what about between those other two options? Well, you know, basically the question is who the onus should be on to report the change in the child's circumstances to the IRS. And, and so, you know, big picture that the uh, bill envisions is that the onus would be on the new household, household B, to report to the IRS that the child has moved in to that household. And, and basically like from that point on, once the new household reports that, payments would stop going to the old household and the new household would be entitled to payments going forward. Now, there's a little bit of softening on the edges, so there would be a grace period. So if, you know, household B took a few months, you know, like three months to alert the IRS to the change, they would be able to go back and claim those, you know, three prior months, and household A wouldn't have to pay those back. And then in cases of, of hardship, household B would also have some flexibility to retroactively claim previous months uh, since the child has moved in. But, it, but in none of those cases, would uh, household A really have to pay back payments that it received as long as, you know, some basic requirements are met. So in terms of establishing presumptive eligibility, could you walk us through the requirements for establishing that with the IRS? Yeah, and presumptive eligibility is this idea that once a household sort of establishes presumptive eligibility, 
they won't have to pay back payments that they receive from the IRS for at least some, some period of time until they sort of are required to like reassert their eligibility again. The way that a taxpayer establishes presumptive eligibility is, is spelled out in the, the bill legislation is to basically, they have to have a reasonable expectation and intent that the taxpayer will continue to be eligible to claim the specified child for the current month, as well as the two following months. So, you know, the taxpayer has to basically expect the kid is going to keep living with them for three months. They're gonna care for the kid for three months and uh, going forward. And if they do that, they'll be able to sort of start getting advanced payments for that child. And if after that amount of time, you know, it turns out the kid has moved away, but they keep on getting a month or so two of advanced payments, uh, they won't have to pay those back to the IRS. Support for this podcast is provided by the University of California, Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. The Graduate Tax Program at the UC Irvine School of Law is the number one ranked graduate tax program on the West Coast and number five ranked program nationally. It offers a unique curriculum that gives students a chance to develop both deep knowledge and the practical skills needed to practice law both here in the U.S. and around the world. It's a one-year, full-time program held at the UC Irvine campus. Applications are open now. The deadline to apply for non-U.S. applicants is February 1, 2022. U.S. and U.S.-based international applicants must apply by July 1, 2022. To apply today, visit law.uci.edu slash gradtax. That's law uci.edu slash grad tax. The proposal also includes rules for the reconciliation of the credit, which you've touched on, and the monthly advance payments. Are there additional details about how that would work? The main issue for the rules there is about presumptive eligibility. So the idea is that if a, a household, if a taxpayer establishes presumptive eligibility, they're not going to have to pay back advanced payments they receive based on their child switching locations. And similarly, you know, with the exceptions I talked about, if a child moves from one household to a new household, the new household generally won't be able to go back and claim months for the child living with them until they tell the IRS the child is now there. So you know, that's, that's one sort of reason why households might need to reconcile is, is if children move locations. The other big reason why households might need to reconcile advanced payments they receive is if uh, their income changes during the year. So for example, you know, this is not how the law works, but you can imagine the law might work this way. As a basic point is, you know, if your income goes up too much, you hit the phase out and you don't qualify for as much of the child tax credit. So if you received sort of the full child tax credit as advanced payments, you might have to pay some of it back. Again, right, I think the drafters of this legislation, it, it seems from this bill, were really concerned about forcing families to pay back money they've already received. And they avoid that also, not only for changes from kids moving households, but also for fluctuations in income. And the way they, they've done that is to say, your amount of income, your income that's relevant for determining the phase out is not necessarily your income in the current year. It's the lowest of your income in the current year and the two prior years, basically the years that your advanced payments were calculated based on. So for example, if a household has you know, very low income in one year, gets a full payment amount, and then you know, gets a very high paying job and, and is subject to the phase out in a subsequent year, 
they won't necessarily have to pay back the excess advance payments to the IRS. Basically, there won't be excess advance payments to the IRS the way the statute is written because they won't, they won't face the phase out. The phase out is based on the minimum of their current year's income as well as their prior year's income, including the year that they had lower income. And so that, again, is sort of avoiding another source of potential reason why a taxpayer would have to you know, reconcile, would have to have some of their benefits flawed back to the IRS. So with that review of the proposal, what do you see as the major implications of these changes for both the taxpayers who receive the credit and practitioners who are going to be helping families navigate it? I think the biggest change for taxpayers and practitioners is that they'll now need to inform the IRS through a portal if a new child moves into their household. So if they start caring for a child midway through the year, it is in their interest to tell the IRS about that change so that not only can they start getting advanced monthly payments for that child, but in order to also establish their eligibility to get those months for that child at the end of the year. Basically, if they don't do that, basically there's a risk that some other household will continue to receive advanced monthly payments for that child instead of the new household where the child now lives. The implementation of the proposal would be the IRS's job, as it has been so far, and the statute indicates areas where regulatory guidance will likely be needed. What are some of the main areas for the IRS and Treasury to address, and what can we be looking forward to in additional guidance should the draft proposal become law? There are a couple of big areas where Treasury guidance will definitely be needed here. One is about what counts as a hardship exemption. And so again, you know, the basic rule is that when a child moves to a new household, the onus is on the new household to report the child's presence to the IRS to start qualifying for benefits. But I mentioned in some cases, the new household will be able to claim months before they report the child's presence to the IRS. And one of those big categories of cases is, is if there's a hardship. So, you know, certainly domestic violence would count in this situation. That's, that's one of the cases that everyone's talking about. So if you know, a victim of domestic violence flees from an abuser with her children and doesn't immediately report the child's presence, the children's presence to the IRS, this hardship exemption would allow her to do that retroactively. But the full scope of this hardship exemption is something that would need to be fleshed out through IRS and Treasury regulation. Another example of a place where, where guidance is needed is, is about how exactly the IRS and Treasury will adjudicate disputes between claimants for one child, what their processes will be, what the procedures will be, uh, and what sort of standards they'll use in those cases. So if, if two taxpayers both claim that a child is living with them for a month, you know, there's, there's some of this is spelled out in the statute about how the IRS might pause payments or, or they might continue payments, but now the taxpayer is on notice that if, if it turns out the kid isn't with them, they're going to have to pay back the money that they've received. But those exact procedures are going to you know, require a lot more detail than what's been specified so far. Well, thank you, Jacob, for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief, Paige Jones. Paige, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Bob Leonard examines the significant federal income tax issues and opportunities that can arise during the life cycle of a convertible debt instrument. Megan Brackney and Josh Singh explore the effect of the Taxpayer First Act's 
procedural requirement that John Doe summonses be narrowly tailored to information that pertains to the failure or potential failure to comply with tax laws. In Tax Note State, Kevin Herzberg and Patrick Skihan review the sales tax landscape more than three years after Wayfair and consider remaining open questions. Francine Lippman and James Williamson review recently enacted enhancements to the child tax credit and provide examples to illustrate the possible issues presented. In Tax Notes International, four tax professionals show how the Shapley value can be used by transfer pricing professionals to implement the OECD's value creation approach when several legal entities make specific contributions to a multinational group's profit. Sunny Kishore Balani and Bridget Baumgartner consider the digital transformation of tax administrations and forecast a continuing shift toward data-driven, automated, and real-time tax systems. In featured analysis, Benjamin Willis argues that reconciliation laws shift legislative power to the executive branch, potentially pushing the limits of executive authority, particularly when coupled with doubled spending on IRS enforcement to close the tax gap. And on the opinions page, Nana Amasarfo examines how much needed relief is still waiting for borrowers participating in the government's income-driven repayment programs. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at TaxNotes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. For the last few months, frequent guest of the podcast, Tax Notes legal reporter Ryan Finley, and I have been working on something special. And now we're ready to show it to everyone. We designed the Tax Notes Transfer Pricing Center as a one-stop shop for transfer pricing news, rules, and guidance from the OECD, US, UN, and around the world. On the OECD page, you'll find a comprehensive topic index that will take you directly to the OECD guidelines section you're looking for. On the US page, you'll find a digest of important court cases with summaries and links to key documents and related cases. And while you're looking around, check out the OECD US comparison table to quickly reference related topics. And everywhere you go in the Tax Notes Transfer Pricing Center, you'll find convenient links to news and commentary from all of the talented writers here at Tax Notes, Ryan Finley very much included. To check it out today, go to taxnotes.com slash transfer pricing. That's taxnotes.com slash transfer pricing. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.